The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight I'm going to begin a, a new chapter in the book, The Mind in the Way, Buddhist Reflections on Life. And uh, this is a book by Ajahn Sumedho. And I've just been following it and basing some of my talks on the different chapters. And this chapter is The Mind in the Universe. It's chapter 6, in case you'd like to read along. And the chapter is really about right view. <clears throat> and in Buddhism, uh, this is, uh, in a way, you know, like we always... There's a lot of ways that sum up the practice, but one of the ways we can sum up the practice is the basic problem is we're relating to our life, to our experience with wrong view. And so <coughs> once we start to recognize that, that'll, that itself is right view. Just noticing wrong view is right view. Not being caught in wrong view is right view. And right view, wrong view, revolves around this filter of self-centeredness. So the more self-centered the mind, the particular filter we're living with, then the more wrong it is, in the sense of it leads to suffering and stress. And the less of that, then we call that right view. So ultimately, right view is defined by a mind in a moment. You don't need to think about it like forever. But our mind in a moment, free of self-centered activity or view. So that's right view. Not so much that we have an idea of what right view is, but we know what it isn't. It isn't a mind under the influence of self-centeredness. And it's interesting, you know, all of us want to be happy. And I'm assuming, you know, in our own particular way, we're spending our whole day doing what we think will lead to happiness. But what's interesting is how little time we've actually... I mean, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about what will make us happy and thinking about what won't make us happy. But we haven't actually... We don't usually spend a lot of time reflecting, contemplating the uh, mind or heart that wants to be happy. Or... You know, where is this experience, what is this experience of discontentment that is telling me that I want to be happier than I am right now? Right? So if I want to be happy, that means that something's happening right now, like discontentment. So this is, uh, this chapter really is uh, encouraging us to look at that level. We're looking at the heart and mind, and we're looking specifically on what filters there are there in the heart and mind. And some of you know this famous line of the Buddhas where he said, the mind, or you could say the heart, is radiant and clear, so naturally radiant and clear, but it's, uh, it's obscured, this natural radiance and clarity is obscured by visiting defilements. So that's what we're getting interested in, these visiting defilements and how we keep missing them.
this could be your homework for the next few weeks, trying to understand the heart or understand this mind that wants to be happy. Right? We all have a mind or heart that wants to be happy. So instead of immediately doing what we think will lead to happiness, let's just spend some time better understanding the heart. What is this heart that wants to be happy? I mean, you see how already that if it's the right question, it, it leads to reflection. I mean, we actually can look right now. What is, what is this experience of discontentment or this wanting to be happy? What is it? There's something, you know, it's always tricky to use concepts, but there's something that we do. And one way to think about it is, you know, if we look at our experience right now, so just be self-reflecting right now. What is it like to be sitting here listening to Mark talk? What's it like to have a mind and body now? And when we were reflective in this way, most of us will notice, if we look, there's a sense of a center, like this experience is being had by me. There's a center, uh, and it's, it's almost like this perception of a center, me, then, then everything that's being known in this present moment, like my voice or the sensations of the body or thoughts in your mind, somehow exists in relationship to that perception of center. So the center is the sense of me here. And then if I see David, then that visual experience and that memory, is, it's, it seems to relate to this feeling of center to me. To me. Like, I know him. <clears throat> and this is our basic dynamic of our present moment experience is there is a perception of center, of a somebody here, and there's usually a perception of this somebody here interacting with all the different conditions, memories, things we see, <clears throat> things we're thinking about, things we're feeling in the body. All of the conditions that are being known seem to interact with this perception of a center of a me. Is this making sense? So do you have that sense of me? I mean, what's so interesting about that, if you can, if you can just relate to that, is, well, who's knowing this sense of me, right? Like, if there's a center, a feeling of there being a me here, a center to this experience that I'm having. And if we can know that, well, who's knowing that? What's knowing that? So this is the, this just, just gives us a sense of how we move towards right view. In a, in a very a good sense, I mean, in a clarifying sense, wrong view means that something's happening in the present moment, but we're not looking at it. We're not seeing it. It's not being known. It's like somehow off the radar screen, like, well, we don't look at that. And this is, this is a sense, like this sense of center is something we don't look at, or this filter we have, or this way of organizing our experience in relationship to a sense of self 
is not something we normally look at or reflect on. And there's some pretty serious consequences for not doing that. Because if we don't, then part of the activity of the present moment is being missed. And then, because all of what we are seeing in the present moment interacts with what we're not looking at, it uh, we, we basically are diluted. We're not really understanding what's going on here. And so the choices we make in life don't actually lead to where we'd like them to lead to, which is happiness or freedom from stress. <clears throat> so one time meditation master, a Buddhist monk, and a while back said that the way to uh, begin to do this reflection is to reflect on the heart and the activity of the heart. So the conditions of the present moment is anything that's moving, anything that comes and goes, those are the conditions and those objects should be known. Our job as a meditator, as a spiritual seeker, is our job is to know what can be known. We don't have to know what we can't know, but we should, you know, I, I know it's not good to say should, but we should know what can be known in any moment. So nothing's off the table. If it can be known, if it can be seen or experienced, then there should be a knowing this is happening and it's like this. So if there is a sense of self or center and that something is something that can be known, then it should be known. So any activity. And the thing about things that can be known is they share the characteristic of coming and going. <clears throat> so whatever we can know, they, those things tend to come and go. They don't last. <coughs> They're constantly in motion. Even the sense of self, you know, like the sense of me being here in the middle of this experience, even that sense of self is arising and ceasing and arising and ceasing. So it, it appears to have some continuity. But if we look, we see that it's, it's getting recreated over and over again. And in one moment, my sense of self may be sort of centered in a feeling of shame or humiliation. And in another moment, the sense of self is established relating to a feeling of pride, like I'm doing a really good job with this talk. And then in another moment, the sense of self is relating to this unpleasantness of being hot and, you know, wishing it were a little cooler, wishing a cool breeze would blow through. So if we look, we see that that isn't the same sense of self. Now the sense of self is about this, now it's about this, now it's about that. It's changing. Everything's changing. Everything that can be known is changing. So you can just do an experiment. Is there anything that can be known that's not changing? So I'll read a little bit from Ajahn Sumedho's book. <laughs>
So he says, reflecting on my experience in the contemplative life, I would say that wrong thinking is based on a view in which we are a self that is permanently separated from everything else. So just reflect. Do you have a sense of self now, right now, that seems somehow apart or separate from everything else? It is a view in which we think that we are this person here, somehow cast forth into the universe and conditioned by it, a helpless victim of circumstances. How many times have you thought or heard other people comment, what did I do to deserve this? Why me? Why do these things have to happen to me? And how, how often do you find people wondering why they feel so lonely, alienated, lost, or depressed? These are very common human experiences, aren't they? We often experience this feeling of isolation, separation, and loneliness, a sense of being lost in a universal system that doesn't care about us, that is impersonal, unloving, and unfair. When we judge the experiences of our own lives from the position of a permanent or absolute separation from everything else, then of course the result is alienation, fear, and anxiety. And our, thought, and our thoughts will stem from those feelings. The way in which we perceive the world will be fraught with an attitude arising from that fear and anxiety. In other words, the particular view we live with has serious implications. So if we have a basic view that we keep reconstructing over and over again in every moment of our life, or maybe in almost every moment of our life, and it's a feeling, it's a view of I'm here and the world's out there, then of course we're going to struggle with alienation and loneliness and uh, wanting some kind of connection, right? So even the, the wanting a connection in the world arises from that uh, living with that view of separation. If we didn't have that view of separation, there would be no longing for connection. <clears throat> so let's keep this really practical. Like, how do we work with this in terms of meditation practice? And how do we work with this in terms of our daily life? And it's actually pretty simple. It's not easy to do, but it's pretty simple, which is we're, you know, I use the word mind and heart a lot, and a lot of Buddhist teachers use that those words, mind and heart. And so the in the essence, the mind is empty, of conditions. So in a way our practice, whether we're formally meditating or just going about our day, our practice is not to get confused between the mind and the conditions in the present moment, the conditions in the mind. So like right now, let's just look at the conditions that are present in the mind. Because the mind is being conditioned right now. So just notice all the different things that are conditioning the mind. Like this visual experience right now we're having, if your eyes are open, 
this visual experience we're having is conditioning the mind. The emotional tone or attitude or mood that is here right now, even if it's not apparent to you, it's also conditioning the mind. The sensations of the body, the pleasantness of the sensations or the unpleasantness of the sensations or the neutrality, the neither pleasant nor unpleasantness of the sensations of the body are conditioning the mind right now. So there's the mind and then there's all the different conditions that are constantly coming and going that are conditioning that mind. And so if we're not aware of the conditions, then what happens is uh, we miss, we get confused by how the conditions interact. Like one of the conditions, me, right, the thought of this is me here having this experience, that's just something arising in the mind in this present moment. That's a thought. But if I don't see that sense of me, then when I get hot, that sense of me interacts with not liking being hot, the temperature, the heat. And they interact. And the mind is diluted, so it takes that interaction as self. So not only is there a sense of self, but there's a sense of self who has a problem with the heat. Or there's a sense of self who really likes something that's going on, or somebody who walked in the room, or really likes the teachings. And so it sets in motion greed or attachment. It sets in motion aversion and fear and confusion. This is what Ajahn Sumedho says about that. We tend to react to life personally. And we can be hurt very easily just by what other people say about us. If you say to me, I don't like the way you look, then I can feel hurt or wounded. We can spend a lifetime resenting and being jealous of those who seem to have more privilege or more wealth than we do. Envy and jealousy are common human problems all over the world. Now, if we couldn't think about ourselves, if we couldn't view ourselves as, separate, as a separate entity, then we wouldn't feel jealous, would we? Jealousy definitely comes from the ability to think about ourselves. We can think, why did he do that? Oh, I'm sorry. Why did he do... What did he do to deserve all those privileges? Why can't I have the same? These are mental conditions, mental formations, that change, arise, and cease. In Buddhism, we distinguish between the mind itself and such mental formations. We define mental formations as the, condition, the conditions of the mind that arise and cease. Examples are the feelings, perceptions, concepts, and sensory consciousness. The universe comprises everything that we can perceive and conceive of. So the universe itself comes under the category of mental formations. So this is something to reflect on. I don't know if, we brought, if I brought this up last week, but it was recently in one of the talks that everything is just a condition in the mind. Even the thought of you know, this existence or this universe. It's just a condition in the mind right now. So 
we, um, you know, one example about how easy it is for us to get deluded is we have such a very, very strong opinion that there's reality, for example, <laughs> right? I, I share this delusion, by the way, just so you know. We have a very strong delusion there's reality or that my home is over there somewhere, you know, each of us. There's a home there or that there's a moon somewhere or this is an earth or there, you know, this is a big sphere and if we went deep enough, we'd come out, you know, on the other side. So we have all these thoughts in the mind right now. That's what they are. They're thoughts in the mind right now. Everything the whole universe, whatever we can conceive of, whatever we perceive, are just conditions in the mind right now. This is the activity that I've been talking about. And the whole thrust of Buddhist mindfulness practice is to develop a willingness and a skill, skillfulness, to be not confused by the conditions. So not to just take the conditions according to habit or superficially, but to just notice that thoughts are just thoughts, even thoughts that we all kind of are codependent with each other on, like, you know, it's 8.30, you know, and that means something, but that's just a thought. 8.30 doesn't mean anything. It's just a thought, 8.30. It's a concept, right? What does 8.30 actually mean? Or what does Wednesday mean? Right? I mean, we could get in a big argument, you know, Wednesday, no, this is Wednesday, but what does that mean? It's just a concept, as is Minnesota. But they seem, these concepts seem to have, like, you can just see how the mind is sticky with these concepts. It's like it creates a sense of ground, reality, by this network, this web of concepts, stories. So what we're doing is, right view is not seeing these present moment conditions in the mind, thoughts, from the point of view of self, but just from the point of view of awareness. It's really simple. We're just thoughts. What are thoughts when they're seen with just awareness? Not no filter, no particular view. But they're just thoughts. Sounds are just sounds. Sensations are just sensations. And so there's no confusion. It's like Ajahn Sumedho says, you know, can we be jealous or envious if there isn't a sense, if we're not viewing our life, living our life from a point of view of self? Would it bother us if someone drove by with the car we've always wanted? It's, it's something to experiment. So when someone does drive by with the car we've always wanted, then we notice the scene, we notice the liking, we notice the sense of somebody who wants, that wanting. But every one of those conditions that are being known, we see it as just a condition in the present moment. We don't claim any of it as me or mine. If we do claim it as me or mine, we notice that then. That can also be a condition that's being known. This is the great thing about the practice. No matter how 
strong our habit energy is, we can simply open to that, just see it as another condition. So even if we have a lot of habits about being deluded, being caught up in self-centered thinking, once the practice gets some momentum, we simply open to that habit of taking things personally. So this is a place all of us can practice right now. We could be in some sticky situation in our life where somebody pushes our buttons, causes some humiliation or some reactive pattern like anger arises or jealousy arises. We take it personally, in other, way, in other words. And right there in that moment of taking it personally, a moment of mindfulness could arise. That a moment of mindfulness means that we're not confused by the conditions that are present in the moment. So in that moment of mindfulness, we realize, we see the taking it personally as a condition in the present moment. Now normally when we're taking something personally, we don't see we're taking it personally. If you did or if we do, then the seeing that we're taking it personally cuts through the taking it personally. It's very hard to take something personally when you see it very clearly that you're taking it personally. It requires not seeing it. You have to be deluded to take something personally, to get caught in that way. Try it. See if you can be really mindful of taking something personally without it being diminished or uprooted in some way. Ajahn Tomato talks about this a little bit more in this chapter. <coughs> Before I started meditating, the universe was something separate from me. And that separation was always a source of suffering because it left me feeling out of touch. If that sort of relationship with the universe is all we ever have, then ours is a rather pathetic life. And we never really understand it. We never really awaken to the mystery, vastness, and wonder of the universe. All we do is try to live for the welfare of this particular body. We can spend our whole life trying to live in a safe place and not be hurt by anyone. And then a little later he says, We are conscious beings. Consciousness is the ability to be a subject that knows an object. But if the subjective aspect of consciousness gets distorted by views, prejudices, and biases, then we tend to misperceive the object. This happens whenever we grasp an idea's idea and apply it generally. We form fixed views, prejudices, and biases. So if we perceive some other person as bad, then we see them as bad in a kind of continuous way. Whenever that person's name or appearance arises in consciousness, <coughs> the association of bad goes along with it. Thus, we can make ourselves insensitive by grasping views and opinions about ourselves and others. We lose our sensitivity and therefore are not awake we are just reacting. We, we talked a little bit about, about this today and on Wednesday mornings we do uh, Qigong here. There's a class and a couple of the people who took the class went and saw Mary Oliver. Some of you probably know she's a well-known poet, one of the better known poets now. And she spoke at uh, Plymouth Congregational Church on Monday. 
and it was packed. And they even had overflow seating where they had the big, uh, you know, closed circuit TV so people could watch her. And uh, so she's a bit of a superstar in certain circles for sure. And we just talked about how we are around superstars because uh, one of the ladies, one of the women who were uh, was at the class this morning was uh, Mary Oliver's sort of chauffeur, kind of took her around during her stay and took care of her. And uh, we were just sort of teasing her about, you know, we're one person removed from knowing Mary Oliver. <laughs> and just that, that sense, like, uh, how we idealize some people, like Mary Oliver can do no harm, as if somehow she doesn't poop or she doesn't do bad things. But she's, of course, a human being with her own particular fears and confusion, I'm sure, I'm imagining at least. And uh, we do the same thing with people we think are bad, like, you know, some people in this room, you know, could bring to mind maybe a politician that you think, you, you know, was bad. But that person, too, is just a person. And uh, his or her love for a relative is a lot like our love for a relative. And their moments of joy and happiness are a lot like our moments of joy and happiness. And that person's moments of humiliation or shame is a lot like or a lot of like our moments of humiliation, shame. So this just gives us an example of how when we when we're living with the self-centered view that this interaction between the conditions in the mind create distortion. And this distortion is taken as reality. All of a sudden we really believe there's evil and there's good as absolute things. Now I'm not saying that it's inappropriate, you know, if, if a tree fell over and crushed a car and hurt some people. It's fine to say among ourselves, oh, that's unfortunate, or that's too bad that that happened. That was bad that that happened. But to somehow, um, like Ajahn Sumedho said, give that character, or sort of establish that characteristic, like, you know, uh, thunderstorms or tornadoes are bad. You know, there's nothing evil about a tornado, ultimately, in any essential way. It's just what it is. It's just conditions. So, relatively speaking, we can say something's bad. But we don't want to be confused by these words. And this is what happens when we get confused by conditions, when we're not seeing all the conditions in the mind. We start to get confused by the conditions that are there. Like if one of our conditions is that the Dharma is holy, you know, the teachings of the Buddha are holy, and should be protected at all costs. And then we start getting really tight. And uh, if somebody, one of our friends says, you know, what is this stuff about Buddhism? You know, then we get tight, like we have to defend the teachings, these great teachings. And because somehow that's good, you know, and so it has to be protected, it has to be sung loud and clear to all beings that this is good. And if they don't see that it's good, it's threatening to us that they don't see that this is good. And then on and on in all the infinite number of our ways that our minds get diluted, that get caught up through the force of attachment. All of this arises because we're getting confused by present moment conditions. It's the only 
way that this could happen. And we call this, in Buddhism, we call this wrong view. Wrong view, again, means we're, um, there are some conditions present that we're not seeing. And it's really this sense of self that is a present moment condition. And in not seeing that sense of self, it, it causes us to get attached to start taking things personally. And everything, all forms of suffering usually or j- just flow from that. <coughs> so we can start having some fun with our practice then. Because once we get this sense of a self or of our personality, then the game, the practice is really to start being mindful of our personality, to be mindful of the sense of self, the wounded self, the happy self, the proud self, the angry self, the complaining self, the flippant self, the cynical self. You know, all the different hats that we wear that we're so used to we don't even see anymore. We just try to bring them up see them in the light of awareness. Oh, flippant self is like this. The old poor me self is like this. The, uh, you know, I care about all being self is like this. So whatever particular personality hat that's arisen, that means it's arisen. That means it's here in the present moment. If it's here in the present moment, it's a condition that can be known. And we really want to not miss that. We really want to see that. So this could be part of our work this in, in the next few weeks, is we can just make a point of naming it in our mind, naming the particular <coughs> personality that's present. And, and this leads to the deepest insights in practice. You know, we talk about anatta, this impersonal or the uh, conditional empty self. Well, this insight arises by seeing the different flavors of the personality, how discontinuous it is. The more we see the personality as a condition in the mind, the less we take it personally. And that's really the essence of practice, is not taking the personality personally. But just letting it be a force, just like the weather's a force, just like the genetics of our physical body, you know, that that we have a a predisposition to stiffness here or to strength here, to indigestion, to snoring. You know, just all those things. We just allow those conditions to be the way they are. Our personality has also been set in motion conditionally through causes and conditions. And it arises in every moment lawfully due to the different triggers. And it's like this. And can we just see that as a condition? And then if we do take it personally, that's also part of the personality, to take it personally. And we can see that. We can see the taking it personally. Then it's different than just taking it personally and being blinded by that. If we see it, then we're not blinded by it. Then it's just something that can be known. (coughs) So it's a subject-object thing. Because we tend not to observe the personality, the personality is seen as the ultimate subject. 
my personality, whatever it is, and it's always my personality is always changing depending on what is getting triggered. But whatever it is, that seems like the ultimate subject. That's really who is here having this experience, this feeling of a personality, right? But what we're learning to do is take the personality as an object. So if we take the personality, the sense of self, as the object, what's the subject? So generally, you know, in terms of how we talk about practice, we say where the heart is, the mind is. But here we're talking about the mind that's undefiled. So a moment of mindfulness, true mindfulness, is that moment of that naturally radiant, clear, undefiled mind. So just a moment of pure awareness, of knowing. So in uh, this tradition of Buddhism, we often say, you know, traditionally, in all Buddhist traditions, you take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, or Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. And what that, what taking refuge, refuge in the Buddha means is taking refuge in that pure awareness. Not some guy who lived 2,500 years ago, but we're taking refuge in the Buddha. The Buddha is the one who knows. It's the mind that's undefiled by confusion. So it's the mind that knows all the conditions that are present in the present moment. And that awareness is always here. The problem is, is that um, out of habit we are confused by what's being known. In a way we get wrapped up and tangled in what's being known and we lose that space of awareness. And so we're in the process of discovering that. And the way we have to discover it is we have to start as a confused being. So when we sit down and meditate, we're a confused being. We're caught. We're already caught. So don't fool. let's not fool ourselves and pretend that we're not caught. We are caught. And so what we do as a caught human being, a deluded human being, is we start to notice what's going on in the mind and body. We undelude ourselves by starting to notice what are the conditions that are present. And we just start seeing things that we weren't seeing a moment before. So we start being really deluded, really confused, and then as the mind settles down, becomes more sensitive, more mindful, then we just start seeing some of the forces, some of the conditions that are present that we had been missing. And then we're less deluded. And then when, with that less delusion, there's more sensitivity, more quiet. We're more sensitive to what's actually present in the moment. And then we see more. So we're even less deluded. And then maybe there are even moments where there is no confusion. And that's a moment of, of the heart or mind not being entangled at all with experience. So it's, it's felt, it's experienced as real freedom. Freedom from the weight of confusion or ignorance. So I'll pick this subject up uh, for at least one more week, but <coughs> it won't be next week because uh, we have a special guest speaker next week. Kevin Griffin will be in town. Uh, he wrote a book, Breath by Breath, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps. And he's going to talk about God as Dharma. You know, in the 12-step program, they have the language, they use the language of God, 
um, as part of the 12 steps. And so Kevin wrote a book about how do how does uh, how does God and Dharma fit? Dharma usually we translate as the way it is. Dharma just means the way it is. That's what we're waking up to when the mind isn't deluded. We're seeing conditions as they actually are. So Kevin's going to talk about the relationship between that and how we might have uh, in the past thought of as God, this sort of benevolent force. But anyway, we have some time now to hear from each other. If you have any questions about right view, as I've talked about it, or from your own practice, comments, experiences from your own practice. Greg? I was reading a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, and I remember him saying in there that something to this effect, that the mind, our minds individually, is a product of other minds, which made sense to me. And that sort of implies that the mind is <clears throat> itself a condition. You know what I mean? That the, the, the nature of mind itself is that it's, it's conditioned. And yet, we have this ability to be aware, which uh, cuts through you know, the, the, the thinking or the reaction. It just, I don't know, it's something, I'm, I'm not sure how that can be. Yeah. Well, that's why. I mean, we have to use words on this level. And uh, what's helpful for me is that description of there's the mind, or you could say the space of the mind, and then there's the activity. The activity is what's conditioned. The mind is the unconditioned. Those are just words. So now, how do I know the mind is unconditioned? Right? That, that would be an appropriate question. Like, how do you know, Mark, that the mind is unconditioned, that the essence of the mind or the nature of the mind is fundamentally unconditioned? Or I could say, well, the Buddha said so. But in a way, it's, it's by definition, because everything that's conditioned can be known. So we know that's not the mind, because it's something that's being known by the mind. Right? So what's not... Uh, so we can't ever know the unconditioned, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means it can't be known. It's like, I don't know if this fits, but can a mirror mirror itself? I mean, a mirror can mirror anything that happens in front of it, but can it reflect itself? So we get confused. We've created part of this interaction between the conditions is a sense of ownership, a sense of self. And we get, we get confused by that. Like the, <coughs> some of these wise uh, Buddhist monks would say that the mind, the heart, gets confused by the activity. But fundamentally, it's not a problem. The activity is never a problem. The activity can't actually defile the heart or mind. Conditions can't actually uh, uh, hurt or stain the mind. But it can give. But we can get confused about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The the key is to practice, like to see if there is a refuge here. So we're really we're, we're practicing in two ways. The one way I mentioned just a few minutes ago is 
as a deluded being, we're starting to notice what is in the mind, what's being known in the present moment. And then there's another way of practicing, which is, in a, in a sense, a more radical way of practicing, which is just a radical trust. In a way, it's like, you know that game that you t- seems like people do when teenagers go away on camps, to camps, you know, where one person stands on a little stool, and he or she has to, like, hold their hands like this and then fall back, and their friends are there to catch them, you know? And it's a little bit like that. It's like, in any moment of our life will do, we just practice completely trusting awareness, like letting go of any uh, negotiation with the present moment, trying to get something, trying to feed off of it, trying to push something away. But it's a radical acceptance or openness to the present moment. That's, in the, that's the second way of practicing. So that's like the direct way. It's a lot of faith, a lot of trust. Or, or we imitate it. But if we really do it, it takes a lot of trust. The other way is to just own the fact that we're a deluded being and to get interested in being a deluded being. So instead of being distracted by being a deluded being and all the ways that we tend, our habit energy pushes us, and instead we start to get interested in the experience of being deluded. Like, what is happening in this deluded state? And so we just start noticing more and more of the conditions. When we really see conditions, then we're not deluded by them. And the more conditions we see in the present moment, especially the mental conditions, the more free the mind becomes, the less deluded. Other thoughts people have? Yeah. Uh, that that movement of trust or unconditional acceptance is a kind of a death. I mean, whatever <coughs> sort of self-centered thinking is going on now, any fear, any hopes and dreams, any thoughts about who you want to be, what you want to become, like wanting to become enlightened, all that has to be let go of. Or the attachment to all that has to be let go of. So an imitation would be, I'm going to do it because I want to be free or I want to be enlightened. But see, that's, a, that's an attainment or a becoming activity. I want, I want. It's already, you're trying to get something out of that unconditional surrender. But that unconditional surrender is that there isn't anybody here that needs anything. It's like a radical trust that it's already okay. So all self-centered pursuits or for a moment dropped. And an imitation would be we're trying to get something out of that unconditional surrender. So it really it comes out of spiritual exhaustion. It's like having tried all of our egoistic pursuits, we give up. It's too much. It doesn't work. And that's part of the trust. Like what we tend to trust is that all of our habit energy doesn't work. We really trust that. It doesn't work. And so we just give up. Now, when that's done in a healthy way, that's that uh, direct path. Mm-hmm. Kendrick? Do you, find, do you find this fear that's coming up for me a lot, or kind of a hook like between, um, you know, as, as you're looking at different things that you are and then the space wide 
question and um, there's a there's a certain fierceness in practice and it's very specific kind of fierceness it isn't a hardness but it's like when we're practicing then we're really practicing so even though that thought that that question that you stated about like well what about personal responsibility even though that is a very compelling question and perhaps worthy of reflection but in the from the point of view of awareness it's just a thought it's just worry it's just the doubt so you see it as a condition in the mind fearlessly not taking the bait from a self-centered point of view that's a worthy thing to reflect on but when you're practicing you're practicing seeing everything as conditions in the mind. Even really appropriate questions are just thoughts in the mind. Does it prevent you from reflecting on it after the set? As a question. As a, you know, from a self-centered point of view, what is the role of personal responsibility? Right? Actually, there's no problem living this integration between the relative and the absolute or between dualism and non-dualism there's no problem whatsoever except we think there's a problem but before we can discover that there isn't a problem we have to know what non-dualism is so when you're doing the non-dualistic practice which is basically a vipassana or, or mindfulness practice that means we're taking the position of awareness that means everything every condition that arises no matter how compelling is just a phenomena arising in the present moment and it's like this it's just a doubt it's just a worry it's just a thought and it's like this no I would I would recommend it doing walking around but your mind is can be very nimble you can have a moment of this and then and then that moment provides a moment of real clarity of non-confusion and then in the next moment you can completely inhabit your relative existence as a person with responsibility and it's and you just see you've discovered this amazing thing which is they don't contradict each other in fact you become a better sort of ordinary human being the more you have those moments of seeing everything as just conditions being known because what it does is it takes the charge out of the moment and then it allows you to respond more skillfully to take responsibility more skillfully for your thoughts and words and actions to really take care of all things better 
because there's no charge. You're not you're not trying to do it to impress other people or because you should do it. It becomes more of an effortless skillfulness. And the thing is, we tend not to do this other practice. So that's why there's a lot of encouragement to emphasize this as opposed to reflecting on what is skillful uh, taking responsibility, skillful taking of responsibility. What does that mean? Because we tend to think about that. The trouble is we think about that with not much clarity. We, so we basically repeat the habits. You know, We think about it in the way that we thought about it before. We don't get any deeper understanding. So that's why we're really emphasizing this more radical practice, which is just to relate with awareness and see everything that can be known as just a condition being known in the moment. Not good, not bad. So this is beyond good and bad, beyond gain and loss. It's just things being known. There's that powerful equanimity. Things are being known. That's what we're cultivating. Time for one more short comment. If anybody has any thoughts or comments. Mm-hmm. That came to mind when you were talking about looking at the moment. It was some years ago when I was in a store and I didn't get what I wanted from the salesperson and I got really pissed off. You know, I was stomping out of the store with my partner carrying behind me and as I was walking on the sidewalk, another woman walked by and looked at me and then turned to my partner and said, boy, she's really mad. And she laughed. And it just totally dissolved the anger, just like, it just was gone, just gone. And I realized how foolish I had been behaving, so I was able to turn around and go back to the store and apologize for being a jerk. And it worked out. That just came to mind. Well, I think it's a a perfect example of what I've been talking about. It's nice because it's so practical. So you're walking out. The anger was there, but you weren't seeing it as a condition in the mind. You were completely caught and deluded by it. And then because of her comment, it like opened a door for you to see the anger as just something happening in the mind, which like popped the attachment. And it freed up what was bound up a moment before. And it allowed you, and then going back to what you were saying, Kendrick, or the question you asked, Kendrick, and then quite naturally, effortlessly, body started to respond to the world in a more appropriate way. You know, she noticed the remorse, she walked back in, she, you know, took care of what was set in motion as best she could, all because she wasn't as deluded, because she had a moment of mindfulness. So thanks, Bonnie, for grounding the discussion in something so practical. Let's just let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.